1: Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. You believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us.
2: Welcome to the Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with Kate Phipps
3: and Tasha Robinson.
2: Genevieve is hiding behind the boards this week, ready to ambush our rivals. Every week we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're declaring a truce among rival movie podcasts. Between the canon, how did this get made? The big picture, and you must remember this on the West Coast, blank check, we hate movies, and the flop house on the East Coast, and film spotting and the next picture show in the Midwest, we're all competing against each other for listeners and advertising dollars. Now, if we all band together and created one 20 hour mega podcast, no one could stop us. Can you dig it, Tasha? Can you dig it?
3: blam Oh,
2: I've been shot. And as I die, so dies the dream of a unified podcasting landscape. Keith did it! Wait, what? You must avenge my death. There's about three or four miles between our recording space at Genevieve Kosky's apartment in Lakeview and Keith's home base in Andersonville. To make it home, Keith will have to run a gauntlet of colorful movie podcast gangs, including the Chaplains with their bowler hats and grease-paint mustaches, the Finchers, a loose collective of serial killers and sociopaths, and the girl gang known as the Sofias, who mostly chill out to the music of air. How will I ever make it through the night? Funny you should ask, Keith, because on this edition of The Next Picture Show, we have a pairing that offers two blueprints for success. But Tasha, since I'm bleeding out over here, I'll let you do the honors.
3: Okay, let me just stow the smoking gun. In 1979, director Walter Hill put the gang-ridden world of New York City in front of a funhouse mirror with The Warriors, his adaptation of Saul Urick's novel of the same name. With the ancient Greek books Anabasis by Xenophon as an inspiration, The Warriors is about one gang's long, perilous journey across hostile territory. When a Coney Island gang called The Warriors is falsely accused of assassinating a leader who wanted to bring all the gangs of New York together, they have to make it home from the Bronx. This involves passing through neighborhood after neighborhood of colorful gangs, from the bat-wielding baseball furies to the punks who scoot around in overalls and roller skates. The Warriors sprung to mind when we watched the latest chapter in the John Wick saga, John Wick, Chapter 3, Parabellum, which picks up with Keanu Reeves' assassin dashing through the streets of New York City. Wick has been declared excommunicado for executing an unsanctioned killing at the Continental, a safe haven for assassins like himself. Now he's got a $14 million bounty on his head, and every band of professional killers in the city is after him.
2: John Wick, come out to play! Two weeks, two violent journeys through the night. On this episode, we'll look at The Warriors, a controversial hit that's since become a cult classic. Then next week, we'll check in on John Wick, who's still taking down the bad guys one headshot at a time.
3: These
1: are the armies of the night. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? The furies. The boppers. The hi hats. The lizzies. The turnbull aces. The gramercy riffs. Riffs and these are the warriors we know about the warriors they're a heavy outfit they're from coney island warriors you guys are the big dudes huh now they're in the bronx we're going back 27 miles behind enemy lines it's the only choice we got between them and safety stand twenty thousand cops (laughs) and a hundred thousand sworn enemies i want them all I want all the warriors. They've got one way out. They've got one chance. They've got one night. The Warriors.
2: The 1970s and early 1980s were full of legendary runs by iconoclastic directors at the top of their game. Francis Ford Coppola did The Godfather and The Godfather Part II, The Conversation and Apocalypse Now. Martin Scorsese did Mean Streets, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, and Taxi Driver. Robert Altman did The Long Goodbye, Thieves Like Us, California Split, and Nashville. But to that list of hot streaks, I'd add Walter Hill from 1978 to 1982, The Driver, The Warriors, The Long Riders, Southern Comfort, and 48 Hours, and that's not to mention his involvement in the original 1979 Alien. Hill's aesthetic could be called stripped down. Surely he'd appreciate so concise a descriptor. Early in his career, Hill would write in what he called quote, an extremely spare, almost haiku style in both stage directions and dialogue, close quote. His script for The Driver is like a masterpiece of cold minimalism, his three main characters are unnamed, referred to as the driver, the detective, and the player, and they're each described up front in seven short sentences. For example, this is what Hill has for the driver. Quote, lives alone, chauffeured getaways for 12 years, best wheel man in the city, works off the street, never asks a question, always wears a dark suit, and never wears a tie. A good Walter Hill film feels like a cross between a bare-bones American western and the existential feel of a film like Jean-Pierre Melville's Le Samurai. So the first quality to appreciate about The Warriors, his controversial cult favorite from 1979, is how it cuts to the quick. The director's cut edition that's currently circulating on DVD and streaming includes opening narration and graphic elements connecting the film to comic books and the Greeks, but Hill is normally the type to reject such embellishments. Without those framing devices, it's an action-packed 90 minutes that gets to the inciting incident of an assassination of the Bronx as quickly as possible, and then sends a gang from Coney Island on a perilous nocturnal journey through hostile turf. It doesn't get much simpler than that, which is a large part of its appeal. At the same time, minimalism isn't the same as a lack of complexity or sophistication. Adapting Sol Urich's novel of the same name, Hill had the audacity to exploit the real-life problem of a gang-infested city by twisting the premise to his own ends where a film like Death Wish fantasized about killing street punks five years earlier, the Warriors has the nerve to treat the plight of young gang members with more sympathy and nuance. Surely, there was a section of the viewing public that would be alarmed by the proposition voiced by Cyrus, the charismatic leader of the Gramercy Rifts, to forge a lasting truce and consolidate power to terrorize the city more effectively. But his assassination is treated as a tragedy, because it will spark more violence among the city's gangs when their energies could be more positively directed towards shakedowns of ordinary citizens. All that aside, The Warriors is a thrillingly abstract journey through what we would recognize as a comic book version of New York without Hill's director's cut having to point it out. Each gang and each confrontation has its own flavor, from the baseball furies chasing down the warriors in Riverside Park to the all-female Lizzies luring them into an ambush at a dive bar. And then when we finally arrive at Coney Island with its famous boardwalk and wonder wheel, Hill renders it as a bittersweet homecoming, as if this haunted place wasn't worth the trouble it took to get there. Hill is a master at shooting vicious fights, with his signature punctuation of shattered glass and mirrors. The Warriors is also a vivid rendering of a city with a gang problem that has the moxie to look at the problem from a gang's eye view. We'll talk more about it after the break.
1: Right now, with nine delegates from a hundred gangs. And there's over a hundred more. That's 20,000 hardcore members, 40,000 counting affiliates, and 20,000 more not organized but ready to fight. 60,000 soldiers. Yeah. Now, there ain't but 20,000 police in the whole town. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it?
2: Okay, so, uh, so The Warriors, uh, the standard first question, what is your past experience with this film and maybe Walter Hill's work in general? Well,
0: I've seen this film many times over the years. I think The last time I saw it may have been the quintessential viewing experience of, of seeing this, which was a midnight screening where uh, someone who, under the influence of something or other, kind of wandered around the, the theater for about <laughs> the first half until eventually the police were called and he was kicked out. So, that to me, anything would be kind of stepped down, uh, uh for the, from that. But uh, and Walter Hill in general, I'm a, I'm a big fan, but there's some key movies I have not seen, I need to catch up with. I've been meaning to do that for a while. I mean, you've been talking to me about the driver for how long, Scott? Oh my god, you, um, you
2: should see it. You're right, if, yeah. we, if the next. Picture show existed back when Drive came out. Then we yeah. would have had an easy pairing with that one.
0: Oh, for sure. I have seen the Assignment, however. I think I'm one up on you there.
2: Isn't the Assignment a Sidney Lumet film? Uh, no, not it's the Assignment. Oh, that Assignment. 2016 <laughs> oh, right. version. With, uh, with, you are uh, one up on me there. Avoid.
0: <laughs> a- Although it does, it's kind of a reunion with uh,
2: Sigourney Weaver. Yeah, I should Malia. watch it anyway. But yeah. I know that, know that. It's one. a
3: just, hell of a cast. Mm,
2: yeah, yeah, I'm telling you. I'm telling you. It was. It had, <laughs> had some. Uh,
0: there's,
3: there's a certain kind of film that when you look at the cast and you think I haven't heard of this film, you immediately think. There's clearly a reason I haven't heard of this. Oh, film. it was
2: massively controversial for the second it was at. Well, we'll, we'll take up a, a whole podcast if we yeah, get into we, we why will, it was but, controversial. Uh, but we're here. We're, <laughs> here, to it, talk about, we're here to talk uh, about Peak Walter Hill, uh, of which this seems to be the, uh, one. But what? What do you think, Tasha?
3: I'm sorry. I'm I'm now obsessed with the assignment. I <laughs> now remember. I looked at the description. Yeah. I now remember this. Look, film. if
2: you, I'll say this, we'll close the
0: book on the assignment. If you're looking for a vivid, memorable movie experience, you will not go wrong watching it. <laughs> Maybe not for the right reasons. So. Yeah. I
3: do like a good. Vivid experience, uh, in the in the heydays of video rental stores, um, films like Walter Hill's films just seemed like kind of the quintessential video rental experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I believe I saw this uh, possibly just in the same era of my life when I also saw Forty Eight Hours and Another Forty Eight Hours and Brewster's Millions and uh, Johnny Handsome, like mm-hmm. a lot of these uh, films of his, and I remember it as uh as fun trash cinema, revisit. Visiting it today, it feels like self-aware, fun trash cinema, it's it's still really enjoyable. The craft of it comes out for me a lot more now than it did uh, back in the day. But uh, it's still, like, in, in both cases, I, I still remember there's just this vivid confusion at the fact that it doesn't really come full circle in the end. There isn't really an answer as to why all this happened. And there could have been so many interesting reasons why this all happened. Uh, the character of Luther, played by David Patrick Kelly, who went on to Uh, be Jerry Horn in Twin Peaks is an agent of chaos for chaos's sake. And, In a way, that's kind of a bold choice, like the fact that there's not really a reason to to anything he does. But there are so many more interesting plot choices, I think, that could have been made in terms of possibly the police hiring him to break up this uh, mob activity. Or there's a point in the film where he, he and one of his lieutenants talk, and it sounds like they've got a problem with the warriors. Like maybe the warriors know something they shouldn't or have seen something they shouldn't. And I always expect there to be more to the film than just eh, I did it because I like doing this kind of thing.
0: I love that. I love that. That's <laughs> a really good, that's a good
2: impression. Uh, well, I mean, well, uh, you know, that is definitely something we should dis- discuss more. I would say that this being an assassination just reminds me of so many other political assassinations, which is mm. that you have this visionary who is presenting a certain idea of how the world should be, and there're always going to be people who who react against that and that that's what you're getting i mean it's it seems to me quite plausible that luther in this movie doesn't want to wants to keep the status quo as is doesn't want to be, have this collective of gangs coming together to share the wealth he wants to continue doing what he's doing and this is a threat to that i mean that would be my you know that would be what i would pick up from that or that's sure. the motivation i would give him but but the film def doesn't try or doesn't even really need to articulate why he does it I, I just think it would be plausible for someone to resist an idea that radical
3: i agree with you that 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 might well be his motivation like uh an, an agent of chaos does not want order and an agent of chaos probably does not want specifically somebody to come along and tell him what to do like he definitely seems to have a feeling of like I'm not going to listen to the man but to me uh an articulated idea for why somebody does something is way more interesting than an entire movie revolving around i don't know i do what i feel like i did it because i wanna like there are just so many themes here that that could have been brought up and i get the, the impression that walter hill isn't really that interested in that like he's interested in the journey he's interested in the experience that these men go through and then the trials that they go through he's interested in the greek history yeah. he's not interested in why any of it happens yeah, i mean
2: in the inter- in the in the the dynamic within the warriors has got enough complications without him having to necessarily kind of go outside of that and give you a bigger picture look at what this initiative is all about uh, and what and how all the other gangs are reacting to it that's, that's not really about as you say it's about this journey what's
3: uh, what's your experience with the film oh yes, yeah, so yeah
2: i mean mine was that it, it was in danny perry's cult movies book which oh, was, sure. which, was a, which was um a real film bible for me i think i saw some walter hill films before that some maybe not even that great i mean i saw johnny Handsome when i were, because it was uh, the movie theater i worked at when it came out you know i mean i, I you know it, 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 that sort of thing i think i'm i'm sure i saw 48 hours as as well um but um but the warriors was definitely among those films that were cult movies that i just would automatically go and and, and see and and of course you know as as a fan of genre cinema immediately you know loved it and went looking for other films that Walter Hill had directed, uh, you know, The Long Riders. I think I saw pretty quickly after, for example. But, you know, Walter Hill, I, I have a certain amount of expertise. The assignment mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, being being uh, being the exception because I did write um, for the AV Club. I wrote a primer on his whole career, mm-hmm. um, and came really to appreciate watching. It was one of the, mo- the most fun experiences I've had on a on a director watching his movies because I really got a, a sense of his style and appreciation of his style and the spareness of it in the in the hard hitting aspect of it. There are movies of his that I hadn't seen. You know, for example, his like you know, his debut film called Hard Times. It's just dynamite. Like a just a terrific genre movie that doesn't really get mentioned at all. And then the driver, of course, I was late to that and that's kind of a perfect little movie. And uh, you know, I, I just appreciate both the both the intensity of his and craft of his action sequences, which are on full display in the warriors and then that just minimalist touch of his the ability to establish characters and and their motivations and their relationships with each other in the most concise way possible and also in a way that's that's like dynamic and provocative you look at like 48 hours i mean man that is you know it's not like it's not racially charged doesn't even Mm -hmm. like doesn't even come close to describing it. It is a very bold film where race is really out front in a way that's deeply, deeply uncomfortable, which for a a studio action film or or, or a studio buddy film, which it pretty much invented, Mm -hmm. um, a buddy action movie, I mean, unheard of. So Mm -hmm. so I just, I kind of... uh, appreciate all that about Walter Hill I think he's, he's been consistently interesting throughout his whole career um, you know I mean obviously filmmakers when they as they get older they maybe lose a little bit of their stuff and maybe that's true of Walter Hill but I mean, he's done some later period works that I I mean I guess undisputed it
0: was you know 17 years ago at this point That's yeah. that's a really good later, it is uh, it, I mean one in one like,
2: like even like in his pilot for Deadwood is certainly a fine piece of direction too so uh, I, I really like him and I, and I like The Warriors the it's a lot of fun but one of the things that I talked about in the intro that I wanted to ask the two of you about is just the film's point of view regarding these gangs, because as we know about the history of the movie and the history of New York at this time, I mean the gang problem was a very real thing, and uh, you know, in certain theaters that were relieved of their obligation to even show the warriors out of Concern about there were inc-
0: incidents of violence as as well. Yeah, they
3: they had to pull the film because of uh, gang members apparently being drawn to the subject matter and then like getting into gang fights in theaters.
2: Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
3: I mean, yeah, he says
0: on, on the on the Blu-ray, he talks about how you know, that was a real sticking point was they, that if you did a portrayal of a gang in a movie before, it was basically, how does this kid get out of a gang? Well, gangs are the problem here. And they kind of said, this is, they're adopting a, a neutral, if not positive view of gangs. And that was, uh, and that's all through it. I mean, it's just kind of a, 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 a fact of life for these, for these kids. Uh, I mean, the actors are a little old to be playing kids, but uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, but my, I mean, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is that scene at the end where they encounter the uh, couples coming home from probably prom or whatever, some sort of formal dance, and just no words, but like the divide between their lives and the other kids' lives is just so profound, and it just kind of plays out in this really... Um, In a way that says more, I think, than any, like, really overt social commentary about uh, the problem with gangs ever could.
3: Yeah, I wanted to bring up that scene, too, because I think it's so fascinating. It is prom. Um, according to uh, one of the commentary featurettes,
0: I think it's listed. It's prom growers in the credits too.
3: Yeah, and I find that fascinating because I I assumed that they were coming back from a wedding and that the two men were uh, groomsmen since they were dressed alike. I mean, those people look like they're in their mid to late
0: thirties. Yeah, it, it, it is it is well, <laughs> it's kind of pervasive. Some of the the hairlines of some of these gang members are a little
3: <laughs> a little advanced. suspect. Yeah. <laughs> they they may be retiring directly from the gangs to the senior homes, but let's that's maybe that
2: not that not not many of them are going to be around for this 40 year year anniversary of the yeah, film. Well.
3: But that regardless, that sequence itself is just such a beautiful little bit of direction because there's so much that could have gone into that in terms of uh, them hassling each other or commenting on each other, and instead it's all just done with with silent looks. Like you, you just the the camera lets you follow the eyes of the warriors as they look at this world that has nothing to do with what they're experiencing and then the prom goers eyes as they take in the mercy's dirty feet and just overall like disheveledness and kind of realize where they are like what they've walked into and escape and so much of it is done without any threat from the gang members without Mm -hmm. any visible contempt from the prom goers it's just like we're in the wrong movie. It's almost
0: a shame them off of, <laughs> off of the train in a way.
3: It does. It it feels just a little like they're like, you know, we're we're enduring something tonight that you can't imagine. Could you go be like happy on the on the next car uh-huh. over? Yeah, it's uh, th- that whole sequence is just it's my favorite part of the film. It's just such a beautiful little microcosm.
2: Yeah. I mean just that difficulty on both sides to really kind of under, understand each other. Mm-hmm. Just it's uh well stated and and again in that Walter Hill fashion. Just all visual, all nothing actually said, and quite subtle uh, throughout. So, so I, I appreciated that quality uh, to it. But I just, I think there's just such a risk because I think you have to have, you know, I think there's a, expected to be an attitude about gangs. I mean, just just Cyrus's plan and the way that you know that that is a plan that if it were to be raised or a threat in actual real life you couldn't get an audience of people to be all that excited about
3: the prospect. Well, it's a, it's a terrible plan. Like, the, the taking over the boroughs one-at-a-time plan just doesn't seem like it would ever work. And bringing everybody together in the same place, the police know you're there, and then you announce <laughs> your revolution. Like, these days it would all be done via uh, social media yeah. and, uh, they, like, it might actually work. But at the it, time, it seems like a terrible plan.
0: In the novel, apparently, the meeting is, is uh, signaled by a, a Beatles song playing on the radio that's that's sort of the code that tells them all to gather oh interesting does it say which no oh well not not in the wikipedia entry i can't i cannot claim any deeper knowledge of the the, uh, (laughs) novel than that
3: that's uh, It's a
2: magical mystery tour.
3: It, I mean, it's an interesting tie-in to the way we have the DJ kind of like leading people through the story here and uh, letting everybody in town kind of know the the play-by-play, which is very important in a pre-social media age where you can't just look on Twitter and see who's seen them recently. But as far as the attitude towards the gang members go, I think it's really interesting that they don't really talk about being gang members at all. Like they don't, like in West Side Story, for instance, there's so much talk about like our turf and what our turf means to us and our rep and what our rep means to us. And it's just, it's very clear why these kids are in a gang and what the gang does on a daily basis, what it means to them. Yeah. Here, being in the Warriors seems to solely be about having your buddies back, like caring about what happens to your buddy. It's just a fraternity of brothers. It's a band of brothers who care about each other yeah. And we'll protect each other. No other purpose. It's not about crime. It's not about turf. It's not about uh, having a place to go at night. It's not about picking. Not, a,
2: not on this night. It's not about those things.
3: But, but that's just it. Like they, we only see this night and they no. don't really talk about what their world is like outside this night. We're left to assume whatever else we want about them. But as far as what we see on screen, it's just about having each other's backs. And you don't get that from any of the other gangs because all of the other gangs, except the Lizzie's, like, barely talk, if at all. They're, like, a a silent... I don't want to say faceless, because especially with the Baseball Furies, uh, their faces are, are such a part of their threat. But it's not like they have conversations with many of these people. They talk to the orphans. They talk to the Lizzie's. And uh, yeah, a lot of that conversation seems unnecessary compared to the simplicity of what they go through with the Furies and the Punks.
0: They talk to the orphans for a long time. Yeah. So it's kind of a... A delicate, uh, you know, the, the subtext of that conversation, the way that sort of negotiations playing out between the words, uh, between the lines, it's pretty, pretty fascinating stuff, too.
3: Oh, yeah. They, again, Walter Hill seems just very aware of people's eye lines and mm. eye contact and like a lot of that uh, mercy coming in and interfering is her mouthiness. But an awful lot of it is just that lead orphan looking at her. What's she gonna think about me if I do this? Looking back at the warriors, what are they gonna mm-hmm. think about me if I do this? Looking back at her and like watching his dilemmas play out on his face. That's it's again a very just concise piece of cinema.
0: That character will be played by Adam Driver now, I think.
3: Yeah, that's probably <laughs> the case.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the other thing about this film too is that it's so aestheticized. Crazily, in a way that I maybe takes the bite out of it, in a, a certain sense, in the sense of the film being the potentially dangerous. I mean, it, it, I guess maybe it turned out to be dangerous anyway. If people were starting gang fights inside the movie theater, but like, but you know we could kind of it, as i said in the intro it's sort of it's sort of gangland through in, in a funhouse mirror and it's kind of got that wild otherworldly quality that allows us to get a little bit of a distance from what it is that gangs are and what they actually do and just focus more and, uh, more instead on just the various conflicts and uh, and uh, in interactions that the warriors face trying to get back home and the city itself of course it's just it's, it's a really interesting use of actual locations but making them seem very abstract and comic booky
0: although it's not really like dressing it up that much either you know there's there's I mean the well we'll get into it a little bit later but the the, the comic book edition say this is in the near future but it's a near future in which the movies uh foul play and Heaven can wait are still playing you know <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean it looks very much like a kind of I mean I think probably No, I I was in high school when I first saw it, but I know when I was, I had friends in elementary school who saw it and just kind of thought that's what New York was, you know, (laughs) and I think it's easy, but I mean, in 79, it was a little closer to that than it is, than it is now, you know, definitely, it's just New York turned up a couple of notches, you know.
3: I mean, uh, to some degree, literally, there's, again, on the featurette, the, uh, I forget who it was. I think it's the cinematographer, uh, Andrew Laszlo, who talks about this. Um, but apparently, he he was very concerned with the fact that they were going to be shooting at night uh, during the summer, and nights are very short, so they wouldn't have a lot of, of shoot time. Uh, and they couldn't afford to lose nights. And summer in New York, you get random rains, and he was afraid about not being able to shoot. Uh, if it had rained recently. So they made the executive decision to include a summer rainstorm really early in the film, and then they had an excuse to wet down the streets (laughs) for the entire rest of the film, which both you know, made it look like it had rained recently. So if it rained on and off, that was fine. And meant that the tarmac was constantly reflecting the lights of New York City, you know, just sort of creating this like sandwich effect of lights.
0: I think it's, I mean, and, and that's really plays out in a lot of other films that follow it, like Back to the Future and other, I'm just thinking of Dean Kundi, who who shot that and who shot like John Carpenter's films are always slicked down streets. It's always that cool, that, it's a very cool look, I think.
2: And I associate that kind of, the look of this film with a lot of like horror films and genre films that were used real locations in New York at the time too there's something about the the colors that are like more you know, intense and kind of hostile. I mean, you think of like movies like, like maniac or something like that. Mm-hmm. Was those William Lustig horror movies that had, uh, you know, in the, that you, you saw, of course the look of those movies were imitated in recently in the film, good time that uh, the Safdie brothers did. It just has, it's kind of like grainy. The colors are, are brighter and sharper and harsher uh, than, than normal. It's just like this, like, as you said, Keith kind of just like taking New York as it is and just, kicking it up just a couple of notches and giving it that much more style but there's a lot of style in this thing i mean it is it is a very excite it is a very stylized film it's not at all trying to give you street realism even as it's shot on location.
3: One of the big stylization factors is the costuming which I mean we could talk for quite a while about uh, how all of the gangs are dressed especially in that opening sequence where we're just seeing some of the more extreme you know collectives of every gang member looks alike and is dressed alike but the fact that the warriors uh, costumes include like uh, an open vest and a bare chest for all of them means we spend a lot of the film looking at skin and bared muscles, which makes them both... Uh, kind of like masculine and aggressive, and also just very vulnerable. Like because they spend so much of this film running and fighting for their lives, they all end up very sweaty and bedraggled. And in the same way that the the, the rain slicked streets just kind of reflect the lights, like they're all damp and sweaty and kind of reflecting the lights themselves the entire time. They all look like increasingly wrung out, and because you're looking at so much of their bodies in the process, uh, it's like they they just they kind of become. A part of the streets in a way that somebody like the bay, like the baseball furies, who are dressed like head to toe in baseball uniforms and makeup, there's nothing humanistic there. Like they, they could just as well be evil robots in Logan's Run and instead like the warriors come across you know they're meant to evoke native americans with mm-hmm. the uh like the leather jackets and the uh the war feather design that's the like the little warriors emblem and you know the fact that they're like running around bare-chested i think is is meant to give them kind of an animal quality that's part of the stylization of the film
2: well and, and it's, it's sensitive as you say. sensitive and vulnerable it kind of it, it you know one of the f- films that um that Walter Hill was showing a couple of films that Walter Hill was showing to the cast were those James Dean movies, were *Without a Cause*, *East of Eden*. I mean, it was this idea, really romanticized idea of youth, and and uh, I think you get a certain romantic or sexual intensity um, that's happening in this movie too, and in, in that these muscular dudes with their with their open vests uh, kind of bring that, like you know, the war, you know, the warriors. I mean, somebody like Swan projects that type of masculinity that sort of james dean type type masculinity
3: and he's he spends the whole film like aggressively smoldering like he's he's yeah. doing his best smolder yeah. I for mean, most J- james of james Remar
2: is going well, way over the top as as his as sort of his muscle is being like he's kind of trying too hard but like like swan's kind of keeping it cool like he's like the more uh, authentically uh a charismatic guy yeah, i was fascinated by the story which i
0: didn't know before of, of the character fox did everyone else read oh, this yeah.
3: too? Well, you're talking about the the, the fact that he had a he kind of had, blowout with Hill?
0: Yeah, he and Hill didn't The actor is, is Tom Waits. Thomas waits. He and Hill did not get along, and basically arranged to have his character killed off. I guess they were filming sequence enough or close enough to it that they could do that and killed off like a you know a third of the way to the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently supposed to be a much more of a major character, um, and he
3: was supposed to have the big uh, romantic connection with mm-hmm. with Mercy. Like that was supposed to be his relationship, and instead he gets uh, like arbitrarily killed, and nobody knows. That's that yeah. that haunts me about this film is that when. Marcy shows up, she's like, oh, a cop grabbed him. And everybody assumes that he's in the tombs somewhere. No, he's dead.
0: Right. Yeah, quite dead.
3: And instead, like, Swan gets that in the entirety of that, like, romantic arc.
0: It works for them, though. I mean, the, those two characters. You does know, it? I, well, I, I, <laughs> I, thought, I thought there was chemistry there. I, I'd certainly... Again, it's Walter Hill, like, you know, whatever the circumstances, it's definitely Walter Hill uh, shaving off anything excess in his movie as he's making it.
2: Include, <laughs> including actors he does not
0: like. <laughs> who, who remain uncredited in the film, too. Nah,
3: I, I want to hear more about uh, about this relationship working, because they may have, like, like base animal like they're sexy people making mm-hmm. out, kind of chemistry, but the characters don't work for me romantically. Doesn't even seem like the right word. I don't really understand her character.
0: Uh, it's those people who are just not used to expressing themselves with any kind of vulnerability whatsoever, trying to at least get to know each other a little bit, or trying to like figure out, you know, there's an attraction there, and they're trying to figure out if there's a way there's going to be communication as well in the midst of these horrible circumstances. Um, I I'm not going to go on a limb and say this is a very a complex portrayal of a budding romantic relationship, but I think there's something there.
3: I just, I, I can't get around the fact that she... The, the fact that she starts off her story by essentially trying to get the warriors killed, like, I, I can buy that. Like, she's a troublemaker. They call her out as a troublemaker. Um, she's bored and she wants to see blood. And I can understand that kind of character. But then she follows the warriors and more or less invites them to gang rape her repeatedly. And then she continues to hang out with them uh, through indifference, through violence, through being dragged around the city, and through understanding that everybody is trying to kill them. And it's just, it's manifestly unclear to me what she's getting out of it. Like her little speech in the train uh, tunnel, where she talks about like, she she more or less says like, you got to live life while you can live life. I guess she's getting excitement out of it. It just I don't. I don't see it particularly well portrayed or articulated.
0: Well, the one thing she definitely does get out out of it, and I'm not sure this again, I'm not sure it's particularly well portrayed, but she is basically given a, a membership with the gang. I mean, she sort of leaves it as as a, on equal footing with everybody. She says, "I can hold my own when I go into the fight," and, and uh, well, it doesn't really quite turn into a full on rumble, but but the, she is kind of welcomed in with them.
3: I guess. I mean, I look at that character and versus the character of anybody's in West Side Story, and I like, I can see more of a place for mercy, I guess, that she carved out for herself. Mm. I just think she's pretty, pretty poorly written. Mm. And her ruthless pursuit of Swan through the train, uh, just consists so much of, ah, come on. But come on, though. But, <laughs> but come on. <laughs> I just I don't know. I it, my uh experience with people chasing other people that are just hugely not interested in them in movies is more or less learn to take no. Like I, I I don't care about gender here. It's pretty much just like I don't care if it's the the rom-com where the guy can't take no for an answer or it's the, you know her chasing him through the subway. He just wants to get his friends and get home and she's like she wants to have sex in the train tunnels i guess i don't know i don't i don't quite buy it
2: yeah yeah i guess i'm confused by that character as well though i do like deborah van Mm valkenberg in this movie she she definitely has like a super strong intense screen presence so i'm kind of happy that she's in the movie even though even though uh, you know I, i i can't really puzzle out her motivations uh, any better than than you all can
3: she's super charming in the behind the scenes featurettes talking about what what her experience was like and how much fun she had and what gentlemen the boys were and how she ended up having to share a dressing room with them and like it was never a problem like she she really seems to have enjoyed being on this film and and working with these guys a lot they're nice boys
2: very nice boys yeah <laughs> james remar michael beck
3: uh, can we David just can we just talk about james remar's performance uh, you don't like him in the movie? No, I, I, like I did him. not say that. Okay. He he makes choices. Boy does he make choices. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean I think you kinda need that element too. I mean I like I like that you have this very strong division within the group itself about who's who's in charge and what the direction they should go in. And James Remar is that is that thorn in everybody's side. Um and it, it has he has a much different you know i think more aggressive idea of what you know a gang member should be doing than uh than swan does
3: that first little face-off where in that they're in the graveyard and ajax turns on swan and <laughs> they they pretty much just pull a, a mal and jane like do you want to be in charge of this outfit yes <laughs> yes i do well you can't
2: mal and jane from
3: not firefly okay I
2: just want to which, make sure you know. which is
3: tv sorry yes, i know i just want to make to, sure the, the listeners know what you're talking about tv all over the mic or anything but it's that same sort of dynamic like Ajax doesn't come across as having having the wherewithal uh, to lead this group. He doesn't has have the charisma to leave this group, but he does have the obstreperousness to cause a whole lot of trouble.
1: <laughs> and yeah.
3: you just you can see like from the moment he speaks up, this is not going anywhere good. Uh, and it's going to be entertaining <laughs> as he continues to cause trouble.
2: Yeah. And you get that scene with uh, Mercedes Mercedes rule. is not great. Yeah. I love love seeing her and I forgot that that was her, that Yeah, me too. Was until I, until the credits like oh yeah, that was her. Oh,
0: yeah. you didn't
2: know like when you were watching it that nah, was her? She looks, looks uh, younger, she's so distinctive. But, yeah, I know. She looks young. Um so so uh, one last question before we go. Did you all watch it via the director's cut? Is that the only It's the only one you out can there? get
0: now. It's
3: it's the one we we owned a copy of it. Okay. Uh, which I busted out of the plastic for this occasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I originally saw the the non-director's cut, but yeah, this was the one that we had to hand.
2: I, I mean it, for for what it's yeah.
0: worth the changes are basically what you think they are which is that comic book uh uh devices which <sighs>
2: It's, I think it's awful. <laughs> right. yeah. like, uh, it looks bad. It looks worse now than it did even yeah. when it came, when it came it out. It doesn't
0: look like something from 1979. It doesn't even look like something from 2005. It looks like, like exactly. a 1995, like, you know, some sort of make your own comic book, you know, CD yeah. ROM program or something. But
3: yeah, yeah there's that. And there's uh, the, the there's, little intro. <laughs> Fun- that Hilded himself. That Hilded himself. Yeah. It's recognizably his voice. Did you, uh, did your featurette have the, the little detail about that?
0: Where it's supposed to be Orson Welles. It was supposed to be yeah. Orson Welles.
3: They were working with him on the other side of the wind. And for a while, they were going to have Orson Welles come in and do that voiceover, which might have given it a different quality. But as it is, like that that little intro that's just sort of the story of the Greeks trying to get home after a battle mm-hmm. just kind of <laughs> makes it. It's like if uh, Night of the Living Dead started with uh, George Romero saying uh, racism is a terrible thing in today's society, and many people have gone through grueling experiences trying to suffer. Yeah,
0: it's bad. I mean, you can kind of pretend it's not happening,
2: but... Yeah, I think the I think Walter Hill needed to talk to younger Walter Hill about why <laughs> this was a bad idea, because the Walter Hill that made... The Warriors would seem to be the type of guy who would not want all this extra stuff. Yeah. The uh, other, the other old, thing,
3: older Walter Hill did say that this version, like more, more, much more, he, he said that he's not into director's cuts, he doesn't believe in them, but that yeah. this was the version that, that reflected what he, his mm-hmm. true intentions yeah, well.
0: were. The, the other addition, which I also hate, is that the old wipes have been replaced with that white line wipe. Like uh, going through it, the, the wipes are the you know the the shots are the same, but they've just added like there's CGI thick CGI white line between between the two images, which is much less poetic to me. And
2: yeah, I just uh, hope uh, it would be nice if this cut weren't the one that everybody sees now. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I, mean it's, I thought it was not I thought a it was deal just, breaker, but I just, just thought it was going to be a thing where it was just going to be this fun addition that people mm. would see on maybe pick up on DVD for their fans, and then no
3: i don't think it's that bad i i mean it's it's not like they changed the text it's not like they added a voiceover to swan (laughs) explaining what he's thinking uh it's it's just a garish little interruption but it it doesn't really break up the action that much
2: it could be better but anyway we'll have a lot more to say about the warriors on our next show when we talk about john wick 3 but for right now we're gonna go to feedback Now it's time for feedback, when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Our pairing of Chinatown and Under the Silver Lake continues to fill the virtual mailbags. Let's start with Craig, who has a brief thought on the cynicism embedded in Chinatown. Keith? Craig writes, As a high schooler, Chinatown was my everything. The idea
0: that good intentions are futile spoke to teenage me. It was so punk. As an adult, I've become far less nihilistic. Sure, the world is headed to hell, but shouldn't we at least try to help our friends and neighbors? This is why my current go-to for L.A. noir is Paul Thomas Anderson's adaptation of Inherent Vice. Anderson's film recognizes that the house always wins, but it counterbalances that fact with Doc being able to reunite Coy and his family. The future certainly isn't bright for Doc, but at least he was able to do that small good thing. It's a message that I find comforting in such interesting times as these.
3: I can buy Inherent Vice as kind of a, a very small bit of the anti-Chinatown. It is it is kind of the point where Chinatown meets the Big Lebowski in a way. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, it is much more conventional for, uh, for noirs to be dark and, and cynical and sad, but like at least let the PI accomplish something. Mm-hmm.
0: I I I love Inherit Vice too. That, yeah. that we should find something to pair that with. That'd be
2: that'd
3: be, yeah, a, that'd be,
2: be
0: fun, fun, fun to to revisit. Mm, we've, we've
3: used up all the L A noirs there are, class, so the I don't the the know what
2: classic, pair I was. Uh, we, we'd be bestowing classic status on it at a pretty young age. Yeah, that's true. It's not uh, fun, but that. it is it's good. I, I I like this email. I think it's I appreciate how far Chinatown goes, and I think it's so much of its era in that respect. That despairing nature seems to be the appropriate response. To what was happening in in America at the time and the government at the time and um and, and so i and so to to you know to pick this 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 uh world where there are these huge diabolical forces that can't be stopped i uh, you know i I don't mind there not being that that little bit of hope, but inherent vice has a much warmer quality to it, just by its nature i mean it's just it's got that you know hazy surfer vibe to it it's got that animating uh pta uh humanity um it's just a different kind of thing so I, I'm, I'm happy that they both exist and, and don't necessarily favor one over the other now listener patrick weighs in on the ending of under the silver lake so if you haven't seen it maybe you should pause the podcast watch it on your favorite streaming service and then unpause it tasha <laughs> that's how it works you pause the podcast. <laughs> You go rent a movie. Or you spend two and a half hours watching it, and then Something you come that, back and listen to the podcast. That's like, how it works. You should. Uh, you should do this. assume right
0: now that there are people listening as the credits roll for Under the Silver Lake.
2: I mean, I get my <laughs> podcast through a uh, VCR. That's that's how. That's
3: how. <laughs> go ahead, do it. You know you want to. We'll wait. Okay, we're back. Are you enjoying those credits? <laughs> Uh, Patrick writes, I'm writing in for the first time because of how much I loved your conversation about Under the Silver Lake. After seeing the film, I absolutely adored it. And as one does, I went online to read the related opinions and discussions. I was shocked and saddened to see mostly flat out negativity about the film from decrying the serpentine tangents that don't seem to resolve to outrage about the central character being so deplorable. Cliche as it sounds, I couldn't help but feel that maybe these people really didn't get it. You can imagine my joy hearing some of the film critics I respect most reflect my adoration for this movie. But one element stood out in your conversation that I thought could warrant further discussion. That beautiful ending. This is why I walked away from the wonderfully confounding experience of Under the Silver Lake feeling so satisfied and excited to share with others. Andrew Garfield's character ending up in the bird lady's apartment across from his old place is pure poetry to me. I saw it as a representation of a complete change of perspective following the events of the film, despite him not really ending up anywhere drastically different in his life. He's literally looking back on his past, which is now disconnected, foreign, and inhabited by other people he doesn't connect with. And he's doing so while sharing space with one of the earliest mysteries we see him voyeuristically ponder. The real kicker for me is who he's now closest with. I think it's no coincidence that he's in the apartment of somebody older and wiser. Someone who's accepted life's mysteries is exactly that, not knowing and not caring what the bird is saying, and in turn has found her own carefree happiness in the mundane. Her constant toplessness has to represent something besides her just being quirky, right? He discovers the truth about the bird after being intimate with this person who is the antithesis of who he was at the beginning. He goes to the balcony to reflect on his past from the viewpoint of what was once a mystery to him. The banality of it all seems to be his revelation. The end to his search for meaning and understanding was right outside his window the whole time. All it took was a change of mind. I think this
0: listener is really honest and it squares with my reading of that too, of that moment as well. But I think you also have to entertain the possibility that – He is with someone older and wiser and embracing the mystery and that that he'll never fully understand anything. And that's a step forward. Or this is his descent into complete insanity. They're, they're, and I don't really think the film, the film lets you read it both ways. And I, and I think that's part of, part of why I like that ending so much.
3: I suppose I read it more as a descent into letting somebody else be in charge. Like he's mm. he's been chasing around uh, after all of these goals and he's gotten nowhere. And he's kind of come to that let go and let God place. Except God, in this case, is a topless woman he knows nothing about. Uh, except that he likes looking at her boobs from across the the courtyard i really like this letter though i I like the generous poetic reading of this moment i like just the the taking it all in as a like a distinctive statement about the movie, um, that's not necessarily how I experienced it, but I, I think this is a, a really warm read uh, that is pretty convincing and compelling to me.
2: You know what the ending of the movie reminded me of, and I didn't get a chance to talk about it on the podcast, so I can talk about it now, is the ending of After Hours, this the Martin mm. Scorsese movie, where, which if you recall you know is this this long hellish night that uh, griffin dunn spends being uh confounded and confronted and confounded by various women in other difficulties in in the city of new york but he returns to club berlin where it's just him and uh an older woman much older woman played by verna bloom and they dance to is is that all there is uh by peggy lee and there's something there's suddenly this um sense of um of warmth, of of a return home. I mean, I think that I think that originally it was almost like a literal return to the womb at some point, but they decided that was way too on the nose to do it that way. But like, it has that kind of that kind of quality to it, to where she's almost this maternal figure in his life, and this representation of 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 uh, of warmth and comfort and the things that he's been uh, that have been eluding him this entire time. So that's kind of that. I, I'd be curious. I, I'm curious if that. Was something that influenced uh, on uh, of the silver Lake. because I I, 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 I don't know, I, I felt like there was a pretty solid connection between those two movies.
3: I, this is maybe going a little further out on a limb, but like listening to you describe that, it occurs to me that this isn't that much different from the ending of Brazil. Like, this is a much yeah. less of a fantasy take on it, and it's a much less dark and somber and horrifying take on it, but it is still the story of somebody who goes through just endless escalating madhouse nonsense that presses in on his psyche until at the end of the movie he chooses to escape and the fact that he's capable of like standing from his vantage point of escape and like looking back on what he left behind and how bad it is and just kind of smiling because he knows it can't hurt him anymore uh i I do get a little bit of that same emotion from it it's just a much more it's a much smaller and more grounded and more real world kind of escape
2: Well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll pair the Warriors with John Wick, Chapter 3, Parabellum, another kick-ass action film about a fight-filled journey into the New York City underworld and beyond. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we're going to hoist up our next picture show overalls, strap on some skates, and chase the hosts of film spotting down Lakeshore Drive.